Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk, and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. Did we decide definitively that when my table creaks, they can't hear it on the podcast? I don't know if they heard that I'm sorry. Very this is a creak. very, very creaky table. This is the table that my sisters and I ate around when we were growing up. That, I didn't know that. Yes, yeah, so my parents always ate later because my dad would work late. And so my mom, you know, when he didn't want to come home and just sit right down. And so he, they would eat at nine o'clock at night. So my sisters and I would eat at, you know, whatever, six, six thirty. And my mom would sit at the table and read to us. So she would read like Mary Poppins or the Lawson Prairie and we would eat. And then she would send us to bed and then she would make a gourmet meal for <laughs> for uh, herself and my father we would have like fried bologna and i mean pretty much yes so anyway i this is the table but it's very cool that this is the table this is the table yes yes it has it has um seen better days it was much more it it was much more well cared for in my mother's house (laughs) than in mine but um anyway this it has earned these creeks so what is astonishing you Sunday, I had a conversation with um, a son of Dorita Church. Um, he has since uh, moved on to another ministry, but he grew up Dorita Church, and um, he is a church health consultant. He goes around the country and uh, consults with um, um, churches. I, I can't think of uh, of a of a corner of the country that mm-hmm. he hasn't or isn't working. And um, John is his name, and and John was uh, in worship at Dorita Church on Sunday. Well, let's say John Edwards, because maybe someone listening to this wants to hire him. He's well, very good. <laughs> very, yes, he is very good. Uh, John Edwards was in worship on Sunday, not the politician. Um, <laughs> not that John <laughs> not Edwards. John, not that John Edwards. Uh, his mother is a member of Dorita Church, and we love her. And so he was there uh, on Mother's Day. And uh, after worship, he and I were having a conversation and he said something that was just very uh, curious to me. He said, I think I would um, begin to put Derrida Church in the category of a growing church. And I'm sure I gave him a very odd look mm-hmm. um, because I think we we might have had 30 people in worship on Sunday. We had quite a few people out visiting their mothers. and uh, So um, he... <laughs> He followed up by saying, you know, I heard your announcements about what you've been doing with Project Outpour and the folks who have since uh, found housing um, uh, through that ministry. And now this summer camp in a congregation that has less than three children in worship now is looking to host a summer camp of 80 plus kids. Uh, we, are, uh, we may even have a, a waiting list. And he said, you know, for the most part, churches tend to think about growth only in terms of numbers, only in terms Mm -hmm. of how many people are in the pews or in the seats on Sunday morning. And he says, churches are beginning to add, if not completely shift, their definition of growth to the amount of impact Mm -hmm. they're having in their neighborhood. And somehow... I knew that, but I didn't know it. I saw Mm -hmm. it, but didn't see it. And in that moment, I I was astonished. It's like, oh, because 
in all honesty, I was feeling, I was feeling down mm-hmm. <laughs> because the numbers were down and the energy was low, and it just didn't feel like a quote good Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure I was probably looking down at the ground, dragging my feet. And when he said, you know, you guys are having impact in your neighborhood all because you gathered. Last mm-hmm. fall, you had a prayer summit. You asked God what God wanted you to do as a congregation in 2023, and you took a step of faith by inviting Project Outpour, and then you've taken a step of faith uh, in partnering with an organization uh, called Champion House of Care uh, to um, uh, to host this uh, summer camp uh, this year, and that is will have an impact on the lives of people in this community. And... I was just really blessed by that and encouraged by that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that you sort of have to hold two things in tension as a congregation that is seeking to be healthy. (laughs) Um, So on the one hand, I think there is growth in a healthy church, and that might not necessarily reflect in the overall numbers of people who join the church, but there's growth because there'll be always people who are, are leaving and people who are coming and just sort of that, that is happening and, and to be totally defensive or closed down, um, and looking at that is, is not healthy. So we need to be paying attention to, um, sort of, you know, who, who are we connecting with? Um, but it is also really important not to let that just be a matter of, you know, butts and seats and being able to say that, you know, we, it's our job to be faithful with what we have and to pour goodness out into our community. And you don't have to hit a certain size in order to do that, right? So you don't have to pour goodness out in the community as if you were a 500 member church, if you're a 50 member church, but you are responsible for pouring goodness out into the community you know, at a life-giving and sustainable rate for who you are with authentic, non-transactional joy. And I think that's the other thing, too, is people often are thinking, well, what can we do that will bring people in? Instead of just saying, what can we do that embodies and manifests the presence of the kingdom of God? And so, you know, if it's transactional outreach, then that's just not I mean, it doesn't point to anything except an institution's desire to survive, which is not transformative for anyone. But if it, if what we're saying is this is who we are and what we have is the same thing that any institution has, we have today. <laughs> and so we are going to think about what does it look like to be faithful today with what we have to magnify not ourselves, but to magnify Jesus. And I think a lot of churches will back away from serving their neighbors because they they think, well, the little thing that we can do is not impressive and we want to be impressive. And so we, so we don't, we don't do what we could because it doesn't seem like it will matter to us. And I think that's when we really recognize, oh, we are not comfortable living and growing by the spirit. You know, we're trying to, you know, grind culture for Jesus and that's just not, conducive with the kingdom culture. So, I mean, I, I love that. Um, yeah, I met with elders last night and we were, I shared that whole conversation with them. And, uh, the other thing we walked, 
a, a way thinking um, was that we need to apply this not only to the ministry of the church, but to our own lives. Because right. if the truth is told, I often think, okay, when I reach a certain place in life, when I reach a certain level or get a certain degree or do a certain thing or achieve a certain thing, then I'll turn outward more and mm -hmm. will be more whatever, successful. You put the Impactful. Label on it. Yes. Yeah. But I have agency and resources now, not all that I want, but I can use what I have today to have impact in someone else's life. And I think, you know, the problem is we've just, our, our thinking has been so conditioned and our imagination has been so stunted and captured by the culture that we don't even take seriously our primary text and revelation, which is the life of Jesus. And so the idea that you need to have 50 people to do something that would matter in the kingdom is just an anti-biblical construct, right? So if you say, you know, Jesus was faithful to God with a, with a primary community of 12 people. Now that it's important, you know, just as we're not going to fetish fetishize large, we don't want to fetishize small. So Jesus had a community of 12 people, but it was a community that was very intentionally oriented outward. And it was a porous community. So people were always welcomed in yes. and included. And so I think, you know, there are a lot of churches that will say like, well, you know, one of the things I think that small churches do is just get really defensive and start talking trash about larger churches. <laughs> And, and pretending that the fact that you are small is an indicator that you are more faithful and, you know, you don't get large, you can't intuit or, you know, make a straight causality line from faithfulness to largeness. And you also can't, you know, do from faithfulness to smallness. And I know that when we were really, really wrestling with the size of the Grove, which, I mean, there's just some practical reasons why a church needs to grow, um, and wants to grow, you know, but also just needs to grow. But when we were wrestling with smallness of the church, one of the things that we had to really accept was we were not small because we were so faithful and holy that no one else could stand it. Right. It's not like people walked in and were like, whoa, these people, the holiness, <laughs> the holiness, I just need to avert my eyes. And, you know, I mean, it, that was not why the church was small. And, and so to be able to say, Lord, we have things that we need to repent of and things we need to let go of and like really challenging spiritual journeys that we need to allow you to lead us on. And we need to not, you know, hide behind our size or excuse ourselves because of our size or delay, you know, you know, in anticipation of things being easier or better or more auspicious later. Like the time is now, the day is today. And, and I can, um, I can remember sitting with my spiritual director and she was like, Hey, you know, there are pastors in parts of the world whose congregations are much smaller than yours. And, and to them where you are would seem very large. And I mean, it's all contextual. Yes. And I think like as much as an ugly American as I can be, I'm certainly not a person who believes that, you know, God is doing something through American churches that God is not doing in other parts of the world far be it. So I think to be able to understand that a lot of the ways we evaluate our churches is based on like what kind of institution does our culture celebrate <laughs> instead of saying, okay, how would Jesus, what would Jesus say to us? And I mean, you know, one of the things that was really helpful for me in terms of getting my 
heart reoriented correctly, just out of defensiveness, was looking at Jesus's letters to the churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation and realizing that these are all small churches. And also, these were churches that were all living at a time when to show up for worship uh, with Jesus was to risk immediate death or banishment or, you know, imprisonment. And, and the fact that these small churches who were, you know, practicing their faith in extraordinary, challenging and dangerous times, and Jesus showed up to them and, and he didn't say grow or else. He also didn't say like, oh, you're perfect. Don't change. Like if he has something to say to the churches in first century Roman empire, if he has things to hold against them in spite of all of you know, the sacrifices and risks that they were taking, then I cannot delude myself into thinking that Jesus would walk in to where we are and say, love you, you're perfect, never change, right? Like Jesus just has like a call for us and it's not a, it's not a punishment. It's a path to flourishing and freedom. And so we have to stop resisting. But I do think saying, I'm not going to let go of the truth that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is growth and there is flourishing. But I am going to ask really critical questions about what what am I assuming growth and flourishing will look like, um, and you know, just interrogate those assumptions. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So, what's astonishing you? Uh, so, I have been um, on um, two weeks of vacation and two weeks of study leave. Um, so today is actually my first day back. Um, and I, I think I, on Sunday, um, I was, I did worship at the Grove. I've been worshiping other places, which has been really nice just to visit my friends' churches and sit in the pews, which I love. Um, or to preach as you did at Derrida. Right. Well, yes, I do love that too. But, um, but I, I really, it, it was good to step away. It was necessary to be able to focus on this work with the book, which I will just say, Um, writing this book, I have delivered three children and I will say like writing this book and especially in these end stages, it, it is like giving birth without an epidural. Like I, you just cannot, Wow. (laughs) I mean, I, 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 I'm astonished. Say more. Wow. That's, I mean, I just, I mean, I think just obviously there's lots of discussion in the world about giving birth and, um, what you should and shouldn't do and what that should look like. And I just thanked God for drugs and my, you just had very uneventful, very uneventful processes and, you know, wasn't really particularly painful. It wasn't, you mean, I took a nap, like it was great. (laughs) So, um, and I realized like now as I'm trying to like, I've done all this work on the book, which I know people have told me, and I know that people are praying for me because my ability to sit down and face this work, which I just had so many stigmas and hangups and blocks about, like, I just know it's just supernatural deliverance and I'm really grateful. Um, but to be at this last point, which really is, I mean, is analogous to delivery it's not gestation it's delivery and it's just you know there's no there is no drug (laughs) that you can take to like just do the final push work and um 
I am really, you know, it's just a struggle here at the end. So anyway, that's not even what I was going to say. I just, when I have been gone, have so deeply enjoyed being in other places and um, astonished and grateful at how deeply I missed my community and just how deeply affirmed and confirmed I feel in this life um, that God has called me to at the Grove and with the Grove. And um, I was back on Sunday because our longtime um, music director is transitioning into a new role. And so that was her last Sunday leading worship and we had a dedication and I just, but I also just like, I wanted to be back with my, my family, with my people. And, um, it was just so good to be, um, home and I'm so grateful, you know, just to, I'm just so grateful to be a part of this community that has been on such a long and generative journey of becoming. And I think that's kind of the, the big, um, thing that you can sort of see when you step away and come back is that, I mean, connecting to our earlier conversation is just so tempting to think like, well, when I just get this credential or I just hit this size, like that's when the real, you know, the real stuff will happen. The real ministry will happen. The real maturing will happen. The real impact will happen. And the truth is, you know, the, the ministry and the maturing and the impact, they happen on the way. And so, you know, stepping away, you know, when you're in the, when you're in it, you just can't see it as much as you can see it when you step away that like, oh, when we were in the transformation journey and especially when things were very tenuous, I just sort of kept waiting for like, I wonder when it will feel secure. I wonder when it will feel like, okay, we've arrived, like we have changed, we have made it, we have, you know, hit the bar. And the reality is you there that point doesn't exist. Like there there is no point in life with Jesus, I don't think where you, you arrive at a place and you're just like, you know, nailed it. I I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm setting the cruise control now that you don't live in constant, you know, chaos and disorientation and stress and overwhelm. I think you, you learn to find peace, not in your circumstances and not in how proficient or impressive you feel, but you just real peace and life in who Jesus is and that when you feel like you got it together or when you don't feel like you've got it together, what you feel confident in is, you know, Jesus has definitively ushered in a new reality. And sometimes my life feels like there's lots of manifestations of that reality and things I can point to and go, it's there and the kingdom is there and the kingdom is there. And other times like not at all, but regardless of what I feel, regardless of what is visible in my life, I, that kingdom is is eternal and definitive, and I I believe in it, um, and I'm pointing towards it, and um, content to be on the journey towards it, um, regardless of how much fruit I am enjoying in this particular season, and. Um, this is the last thing I'll say. I was on retreat last week with some friends, some pastor friends who I've been in a covenant group with for 20 years. And I would just like to say for the record, I have been inviting Yolando to be part of this group for how long have I known you? Like 
whatever, 14 years. And he's always like, nah, I'm good. So I just want to say I have other pastor friends and I would like them all to know one another, but no. Anyway, but I was with another friend of mine um, and he was talking a lot about a theologian named um, Anthony Penn. And do you know him? Um, And I, and so he, I had followed up with him to say like, Hey, send me, (laughs) send me where this came from. But um, my friend, Bill Lamar, who's at Metropolitan AME. And if you want to hear some good preaching, Google William Lamar, the fourth. Um, but he was talking about this other theologian, Anthony Penn, who talks about, look, if you're really committed to the kingdom of God, sometimes your ministry looks like the long and defiant no, right? It just looks like saying, look, I get that these systems seem settled. They seem inevitable. They seem impervious and impenetrable. And I can't resist them. I cannot fight them. I cannot topple them. But what I can do and what I absolutely will do is say no to them. And if my ministry looks like saying no to, you know, just sanitized injustice and saying no to exclusive um, communities and saying no to, you know, people just get what they deserve and they are who they are and, you know, let's sort them into the worthy and the unworthy. Like I, I'm just going to say, continue to say no to all of that because that no is more revealing and revelatory of the truth of the kingdom of God than any, you know, watered down impressive um, thing that we make that fits within the hierarchies and institutions that, you know, are not, not of the kingdom. So anyway. Yeah, one of the things I'm aware of is that the enemy of our souls, um, the spirit of the age, even our own human flesh, not our bodies, flesh and blood, but this principle within us that wants to um, live independent of God. But all of those things hold out this carrot of, if you just hold on or do this thing or go this way or make this compromise, then you can arrive. Mm-hmm. Right? And I, I see that quite a bit in our society when it comes to racism, especially mm-hmm. among um, poor, even middle class white people. Because what what white supremacy seems to say to them is, listen, okay, at some level you might think it's bad to hate black and brown people but if you just make this compromise or settle for this thing then then you can you can have a sense of of security you can have that sense of security and okay yeah these people might have to suffer a little bit but uh go after this carrot and and the church is also uh, has its own temptations right well and i think you know to me what i think it looks like among white people is just sort of saying like, okay, you recognize that say the educational system or, you know, the, the housing system or the criminal justice system, like you recognize that it is not, um, that you have an advantage as a white person and that black people and people of color are disadvantaged. You, you recognize that you recognize that that's systemically baked in, you agree that it's wrong and then that's where it stops because you yes. think because because the powers that be say, hey, listen, 
if you try to correct this, you're going to unleash all kinds of other chaos or you don't know or there's no other way. And the people who matter in these disadvantaged communities, like they're not really harmed by it. So just, you know, let it and you say like, okay, well, I don't I'm doing pretty well on this apple cart and I don't want to over upset it. So I'm just going to, you know, kind of let not actively campaign for injustice, but I'm not going to actively resist it. And I'm just going to say if like other people want to fix it, I won't oppose it, but I'm not gonna, you know, it's not my job. It's not my problem. It's not my, it's not my responsibility. And, and I think, you know, that that's problematic because it's, it's then not saying no, it's accommodating. And, and that's the problem, which, you know, the church of Jesus Christ has been doing since 300 AD and I was talking about this in the book that, you know, when when Jesus is baptized and he goes straight out to the wilderness, to the desert, and the devil shows up and is like, hey, dude, there's another way to do this, right. right? There it's is an another way. way for you to, you know, take control of the world. And and the devil shows up and offers Jesus temptations to turn stones into bread. So just sort of say, hey, use your power to get what will satisfy you and what you want and to, you know, jump off the top of the temple. So, you know, to do this impressive feat and people will, you know, follow you because you, you know, are visibly um, impressive and amazing to them. And, and, and you can have power and control over every kingdom and dominion of the world. Just, you know, just worship me, just say like, Hey, everything doesn't have to change so much. I can just be in charge of things the way they are. And, and Jesus unequivocally says no to all of those things and says, you know, if the, if the path towards redeeming the world requires, you know, um, opposing the way things are, even to the point of death, I'll be faithful to that because I trust that the love of God is ultimately triumphant, that if the worst the world can do is to kill us and to threaten us with death, the power of God is, is can answer that threat and we, and we don't need to be intimidated by it. And, and so Jesus says no to that. But when in 300 AD and the Jesus movement is flourishing after the resurrection and all of a sudden, you know, it's everywhere in the Roman empire, it's everywhere and it's and it is unexplainable because the Jesus people have they have no power they have no authority if they have resources they get taken away once they commit to Jesus but like this this idea which is you know the most you know the the one the most subversive thing ever you can't kill an idea which we know in our lives when we think about racism or you know terrorism or whatever you can't kill an idea and so this idea is overturning these roman institutions and so what happens like the enemy of our souls sidles up to the church and says okay couldn't sell jesus incarnate on this but i bet i can sell the body of church the church the body of christ the church this and says you know how about if if you become the emperors in the roman empire how about if you get to control all the institutions and get to use the power, you know, ultimate earthly power to decide who lives and who dies and what's the law and what's not the law. How about if you, you know, and the church said, sign us up, like sounds good to get these tools. And so ever since then, we have just been fighting about, are we going to um, transform the world or are we going to conform to it and try to sort of administer a proxy salvation through what these institutions promise they can deliver. If it's justice or peace or, you know, wisdom or whatever that is. So anyway, that was a long discursus around the barn. Sorry for that. But I do think like just coming back full circle that like you're one of the things that often stops us in 
allowing the kind of growing that God wants us to do. So the, the growing of serving our neighbors is we just don't want to do anything unless we're sure we will be successful. And we, we are, we take failure off the table. And that's what Anthony Penn was saying. And what I think about a lot is that look like Jesus lost. I mean, like before there was the triumph of the resurrection, there was the complete and utter failure, collapse of the movement and the loss of the cross. And when we as believers say, we'll do anything for Jesus except lose, then we shut ourselves off from the real, um, embodiment of resurrection triumph on the other side of loss and the other side of failure. And so I think to be able to say like, we're going to have a summer camp for 80 kids. And of course you're not going to be reckless. And of course you're going to be good stewards. And of course you're going to like be faithful to protect the preciousness of these children. So you're not going to be reckless, but you're also going to attempt something that like it you, it may not work. Like it may be a failure. Like you may get to a point where you're halfway through the summer and you're like, we tried to do this and, and we couldn't keep people safe and we had to shut it down and, and we failed. And, and I think as if we're not, and I mean, I remember Bob and Bill saying this to us in transformation. Like if you are only doing things that you are a hundred percent certain that you can pull off, then you are not walking by faith. You are not doing a single thing by the power of the spirit. And I think for those of us who come from, you know, traditions like like we do in the PCUSA that have had a lot of institutional strength, it's just been really easy to walk in our own strength and call that faith. And so then to get to a point where we are right now, which I think is generative to say like all these things that we thought we could control and that we thought we could count on and all these institutions that we thought were on our side, um, they're, they're, they're passing away. They're falling apart. They're, they're moving on. And we think, oh no, what shall we do? And the truth is... It was never the power of those institutions and, and that kind of temporal power. I mean, God was never dependent upon those things. And we don't even know the wild abundance of God, especially as white people, <laughs> because we've yeah, never had well, to trust. And that's that. why we see both in the church and our society, some people in these times turning back and say, how can we bring back what used to be? And others are move, leaning forward, asking okay, so how can we trust God for the good future, even though it doesn't feel good right now in this moment, how can we trust God for the good future that we know God has planned? Because I think for when we're turning back and saying, I'd like to go back to a life where I personally, where me and my tribe had an advantage, mm -hmm. and that was good for me, I think as a, as a citizen and as a human, whatever, like depending on your ethics and your morals, you know, that that's up to you. But in the through the context of the gospel to say, I achieve the good life when I have an advantage that is available to me and not to others and that God wants it that way. That's not the gospel. I mean, there's no way that you can take seriously that Jesus is the one who, you know, considered not equality with God an advantage to be exploited, but emptied himself of his divinity and came down and was born among us and endured, you know, suffering and discounted the shame even of the cross. Like if that's the central message, then you cannot be okay with profiting off of a system that advantages you at the expense of your neighbors. Like we are a people who know that creation is a space of shalom and mutual flourishing. And our job is to say, no, we're not going to hang on to these hierarchical systems and decide that we're going to be little mini gods who say who gets to flourish and who has to suffer. We are going to continue to follow Jesus all the way through to the other side, believing that 
no place is God forsaken, no person is God forsaken, and that when we are full of the Spirit, we all thrive. Speaking of, what are you thinking about? Last week, um, I was sent two articles, uh, one um, from you and one from a mutual friend of ours, um, Albert Moses, who pastors a church in South Charlotte. Um, Albert sent me an article from the Christian Century, and and I had these two articles in in my mind because they're so different, and yet they're connected. Uh, Albert sent me an article from the Christian Century about um, a man whose friend is a pastor. And I, and I guess the writer of this article is also a, a pastor or is in ministry in some capacity. And his friend is about to complete his PhD and calls him up and says, I'm almost done with my PhD. And he says, what a shame. And then he followed up. He says, you know, you know a good friend also ought to say congratulations. And he says, my first response was, what a shame, because we still have this sense in the church that those who are called into ministry ought to be the smartest and Mm -hmm. the best. Mm -hmm. And if your church is able to call someone with a PhD as their pastor, then that's, that says your church mm-hmm. is a good church, one of the best churches, right? And um, he reminds us what we kind of all intuitively, intuitively know, that just because you have a PhD does not equip you for ministry on the ground with regular people. It does mean that you have reached a certain academic achievement that is to be applauded, but doesn't equip you for ministry with the the things that regular folks go through yeah i mean it doesn't disqualify you but it doesn't mean yeah no i i think that's so juxtapose that with an article that you sent me from the la times about um a group of inmates who went through a program to receive certification as drug and alcohol counselors. Mm -hmm. And the article describes their graduation, uh, and it was complete with um, robes and tassels and uh, um, family and family uh, pomp and circumstance. It, It was a graduation. And there's one picture of these inmates, these students, they're processing down an aisle past family members, and one young man, he's reaching out, and he, he grabs his mother's hand as he walks by. It's really beautiful. And the whole article was just really emotional um, for me to read. One um, man said that this was the first thing he's ever achieved and that he finally felt like he was something other than a criminal. He said, now mm-hmm. I am a professional. I am, mm-hmm. I am a drug counselor. I, I, I'm going to do this for a living. And so here are these men who are uh, incarcerated. Uh, one, one, um, one um, man said that, he said, okay, I'm, I'm waking up in the same bed, mm-hmm. the yeah. same cell. I'm in the same place. I'm in the same jail. 
jail, but I am, I'm free. Yeah. Uh, and it's so beautiful. And so these men are now going to be uh, sent out, um, I think primarily into other prisons to help those with drug and alcohol issues. And they are perfect for that ministry. Number one, they've been there. Number two, they they just know it. They've been through it. And they're now equipped to minister to those in that same place. And I thought, yeah, that if 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 the church, Big C, would um, shift its understanding of what it means to be equipped for ministry yeah. and what it means to minister to people. It really isn't about, of course, you need to, well, I say you need to know some Greek and Hebrew and theology. Okay, fine, fine, fine. But at a very basic and necessary level is can you reflect the incarnation of Jesus. Well, I mean, I would say like so many, I have so many thoughts about that, that like, of course, all truth is God's truth. So, sure. I mean, we, we had the great privilege of going to seminary and it was, it was useful. It was edifying. It was upbuilding. Like I, I'm, I'm not discounting it in any way. And I also just think it's really important to know that the spirit of God is not limited to the pool of those people who went to seminary. And, and sometimes institutionally, you know, institutions have a vested interest in sort of believing that they are necessary in that way. And, you know, I just think academics in America in general and, and maybe beyond in Western civilization is just sort of this idea that it's a it's it's elite and it's exclusive and it's and it's available and appropriate for some and not others. And and that sort of hierarchical competitive construct that we put over learning is just um, gross to use a theological term and, and death giving. And it teaches us that, you know, some people and their voices and their wisdom matter and, and then other people don't. And you can just sort of rank and, and mm -hmm. choose all along the way. And, and at the church, we are supposed to testify to otherwise. And I think sometimes when that worldview creeps inside the body of Christ, it is just doubly destructive. So, I mean, I think to say like, be a, like, go get your PhD. Like, that's awesome. There's nothing wrong with that unless it leads you to think that somehow you have ownership of, you know, the sacred texts or the revolution of the, or the revelation of Jesus. And that you are now some sort of like a, like a licensed distributor um, in a way that other people aren't. And that's not to say that, you know, anybody can wake up in the morning and say, hey, whatever I think about Jesus is, you know, can't be questioned because it can all be questioned um, and tested and it should. But I mean, I think the real fruit of like, what's, what is manifesting the reality of the gospel? I don't know many PhD programs, even in theology that are doing that in the same way that a program inside a federal maximum security prison, investing resources in condemned men who the world sees as criminals and saying, you have within you the capacity to bring freedom and life, not only out of yourself, but out of other people, right? Like that is yeah. the 
gospel. And I think there's just a certain way of, you know, holding the gospel out at arm's length and considering it as is often happens in academia. And it's not that there's not truth there and even generative truth. I, I think there is, but there is this sort of unspoken assumption that these are the places where, um, you know, all, all real things come from and everything else is real only to the extent that the people certified by these institutions recognize it and study it and agree with it. And that's just silly, you know, because those institutions have been corrupted by the powers and principalities just as much as every other institution and every individual person. Right. And so, um, I think that's just, and that's why we really, ironically, I think even and especially in our tradition, like we, we talk about being reformed and we talk about the priesthood of all believers. And yet we often function as pastors in a priestly class, which is, also just gross um, because it makes people think like, okay, some people do ministry and then other people work secular jobs and pays them to do ministry. That's not the, that's not the gospel. Like we are all called to full-time ministries where we flourish and share the gospel in whatever way and place and circumstance that the Lord has called us to. And there is no better or worse. And there is no more or less important. There's healthier and sicker, <laughs> um, but, but, you know, not ranked in the way. And that's just, I mean, whatever, I've got kids in school. And so just this idea that kids intuit from the earliest age, that learning is a competition yes. and it's a scarce quantity that must be fought for. Yes. And that, you know, the amount of learning that you have is threatened you know, you, you got to be better than, I mean, that's just silly. Like any, anyone can learn and learning is literally limitless. And the more you learn does not mean there's less learning left for me. And, and the gospel life is, is, is even deeper than that because the more gospel life you have, the more available and flourishing it is in the world to be a catalyst and an inspiration and a source of strength and nourishment for me. So all of that. Well, what are you thinking about? Well, we don't have a lot of time, do we? Where where are we on our countdown to? Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> just to keep things full circle, um, I have been needing to talk about the coronation oh. that just occurred oh. in Great Britain. Oh. Um. And so, let me just say, I have always sort of understood that the royal family in Great Britain is kind of analogous to Disney World in America. Hmm. Um, and, and you hear people talk about like the royal family primarily exists as like a tourist attraction hmm. and an income generator. <laughs> and like it gives people like, you know, an identity, you know, people are sort of, you know, identify with different people in the royal family and they will go and tour and visit them and it makes money for the Commonwealth. And, you know, it's just kind of this, this relic of a previous era that has been retooled and refashioned to make sense in this world. And I just always thought like, okay, if the royal family is like the Disney world of America and I, I'm not, and I feel like I need to be careful how this can be interpreted because I'm certainly not 
I, I am I'm not on the side of the factions of the people in Florida who are trying to shut Disney World down, but I've always been sort of Disney agnostic. Like I just feel like it's a thing that, um, you know, whatever. But I but I'm like it just seems sort of like if you want to have a, a, a if your Disney World is going to be a family. And if there aren't going to be rides, but you're going to like let these people live this particular life in public and it brings like entertainment and joy and like culture and generates income like you do you, Great Britain, like whatever. It seems weird to me, but I'm an American. So whatever. Um, and we also obviously do our weird and strange things, too. But I, I think it has been really interesting um, for me I can just kind of, it's not my, it's not my circus. It's not my monkeys. It's not really my business. Um, However, (laughs) this Royal coronation happened and um, the whole world was watching and, and it was marketed to people as kind of like a quaint tribal custom of the British and like, look at the hats and look at the spectacle and look at the pomp and the circumstance and like these, it's like living history, whatever. And I am sort of, you know, um, mildly hostile to that, but again, whatever. But the problem is for me as a follower of Jesus Christ and as a pastor, that coronation took place in a church, Mm -hmm. in an abbey. And it was presided over by a person who is a, bishop Mm -hmm. in the church of england which is also the episcopalian church too right maybe i don't really understand the connection um and and so it was a not just a religious ceremony but it was an explicitly christian ceremony that was done in the name of jesus christ and so that is a point where i just feel like okay now this kind of is my circus and it is my monkeys and i just want to like be able to say really clearly like what happened there is not cute it is not amusement it is not disney world like that is a really blasphemous um and destructive theology that was enacted in that room to to bring in a man um, in, in literally wearing all of the garments of royal authority and to say um, in prayer and in singing and in liturgy that God had has created this particular man to be king after and in the stead of and in the model of the king of kings jesus christ i gotta say which is explicitly right like we anoint you king in the name of the king of kings and he says you know i come not to be served but to serve now that's when you got to say hey friends that you can say that (laughs) But the what you are showing and what you are living is the is anathema to the kingdom of Jesus Christ because Jesus actually did come <laughs> not to be served but to serve and Jesus lived with you know no home and place to lay down his head and with 
forsaking all of his advantages to come down and serve and be a suffering servant um, and to challenge the power structures of this world. And King Charles is part of an institution that is looking to put a put a Jesus veneer over a patriarchal, hierarchical, white supremacist structure to say that God has put this person here to rule the world in God's stead and that people and, and people in Britain were literally invited to pledge fealty and loyalty to the king. And people are saying like, oh, that's democratizing because it used to be just the lords <laughs> and the elite who were pledging, but now it's everyone. And I just want to say like, that's not cute. That's not like, oh, I like high tea and I like the funny hats. Like that's actually a, a, a very powerful spiritual um, truth that is being sort of benignly presented to all of us. Um, and, you know, there were people who were protesting in the streets and saying, not my king, and they were arrested, right? So just to say, look, if you are a king after the model of the king of kings, you don't serve by not paying taxes and holding on to generational wealth and power and control. Like, that's not what it means. You know, A, there is no one who is king like the king of kings. Like, to say that Jesus is king means no one else is, period, end of story, the end. So you can't do that. And if you are following the king of kings, then the way you follow him is by eschewing advantages, eschewing power, and following Jesus down to the bottom and to the edges and leveraging what you have for the sake of your neighbors. And so I'm not saying that like King Charles is like, I mean, whatever, he's not demonic. He's not, I'm not saying that he's garbage. I'm not saying that he, I'm saying that he is the figurehead of a system that you cannot seamlessly integrate into the reality of the kingdom of God. And, and what really like deeply disturbs me is the participation of the church of England or the Episcopalian, you know, to the extent that that's the Episcopalian church, like that's problematic. Like that is not the kind of role that a human is equipped to have it. And you can't, you, you can't circle that square. And, you know, the fact that, you know, they took him behind a curtain and anointed him with oil. I mean, like these are ancient, ancient rituals, you know, from the time when people really did say like, no, we need a certain kind of person to have absolute authority and control over all the other riffraff. And as you will all remember, when, when the people, the Hebrew people left Egypt, what they kept saying is we want a king, we want a king, we want a king, like all the other nations. And what God said from the beginning is no, 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 because this is bad because humans aren't equipped or created to have that kind of power and authority and control. It will not end well for you. So sometimes we demand kings for ourselves and, and we like just buy into the lie that we do want to say, like, I just want to believe that one human person can be the ruler and the savior and the authoritative figure. And I don't have to question what they do. I can just get in line and trust that everything will be okay. And that's just not, that's not true, but it's very seductive. And um, I, I think it's just really interesting the way that's all playing out in Great Britain right now, because, you know, these structures, 
I was listening to that same lecture by Anthony Penn and he was saying like the genius of these structures is they're just so good at like morphing and shifting and like conceding some things in order to maintain the central idea. And the central idea that we all watched and applauded and thought was cute is some people have a different quality of humanity that makes them superior and ordained by God to rule over other people. And that is demonic. No matter how cute the hats are, no matter if you invite people of other faiths up to read things, like, no, that that is not okay. So we just need to be able to recognize that, that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that is not neutral. That's not Disneyland. I have to confess, I did not watch the coronation. I did not watch. <laughs> I need that to be known. <laughs> I'm a conscientious objector. And the royal weddings. I did not watch because I knew that there would be great internal conflict. Um, because in some way, what we would be seeing in that ceremony is the anointing of white supremacy. And I no, saw a headline. Not in some way. Well. In exactly the way. Like yes. Great Britain historically is a nation of Anglo-Saxons Saxons, and the yes. whole system is this particular family is the supreme elite head of all the other Anglo-Saxon families. That's where I was going. If you leave Bridgerton, there's nobody who's an elite lord who is. Not, I'm sorry. I didn't mean no, to. That's, just, that's, no, that's where, where I was going. There's some deep irony that I just interrupted to <laughs> no, mansplain it's, it's, white supremacy to you. I'm sorry. It's all good. Forgive me. It's all good. It's all good. Um, I forgot where I was going. Um, <laughs> because I rudely interrupted no, you. I'm sorry. Good. It's all good. It's all good. Where was I going with all that? What? I, You know what? I. You were saying in some ways it was one family and it was an anointing of white supremacy. In some ways it was an anointing of white supremacy. That's when I interrupted you. Yeah, and I, I, I've lost my next thought. I'm really sorry. No. No, I am really sorry. I'm sorry. I just, um, I, I just have impulse so, control issues. So I didn't issues. watch, um, but um, like you, conflicted with the church's involvement, but also knowing that um, you know my last name is Hinton. There is uh, a village, um, Hinton in um, in Wales, um, and and so I am. Um, confident i'm certain that you know there were uh some english settlers with that last name who enslaved some of my ancestors and um here's where i was going uh with my um original thought was i saw a headline uh that asked the question of the new king are you going to apologize for slavery um, because we forget that you know the royal family is responsible for, you know, um, colonizing India, for colonizing parts of East Africa. And um, you're right, it isn't pretty, it isn't cute, and there is this kind of veneer that we put over it and so that we kind of we gloss past that. But if, you know, if I came to your house and took items that I wanted and took them to my house. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 90 years later, they would still belong to you. They're still stolen. 
And I'm wondering, when will the royal family say, confess with all of the Christian ceremony, with all of the Christian mm-hmm. reading, when will the royal family say, you know what, we, we have stolen, <laughs> we have done wrong. There is, there is great room for repentance. And, I mean, why have you stolen? Because you were told that you couldn't steal what already belonged to you, right? Yes. So it is sort of the that myth and pageant that we saw acted out is what, what made it possible to justify the brutality and the because theft. Because if God has ordained it. Right. If God has said India belongs to you, then you can't. I mean, yes, if you come to my house, you can steal from me. But if you are told and everyone around you agrees that you actually own my house, then you're not stealing from me. You're just taking back what's yours and what you know. You And so I think that's the whole thing. And I think when it comes to talking about, like, will you apologize and white people like me? I mean, I you feel very uncomfortable and threatened by this idea that you're accountable for actions that happened before you were born. But one of the things that I think is really helpful, and I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, and I wish I knew who said it because it was not me, but I read before somewhere else, someone who said, look, if you can inherit wealth, then you can inherit guilt. Absolutely. And the truth is, you know, the vast money that that family has, which is in their bank accounts right now that they are excused from paying taxes on, but that money came from you know, came from the institution of the slave trade, came from colonialism, came, I mean, like, you're talking about, it's just awkward at this point, of like, which of my royal crowns am I going to wear? Because people are saying, like, actually, that diamond right there in that one, we can document when yes. you took it from India, yes. we want it back. So yes. this is the problem with you want to say, like, oh, this is benign, and it, and what, ha- you know, it's just not, the, the past is not past. And so, and I think, you know, I was talking to, actually, my same, friend bill who was you know pointing me to anthony penn and he was saying you know one of the things that we need to think about is look if we're all moving together towards a future of mutuality and flourishing and shalom like if we're moving towards a land and we're saying like hey we designed this system we can design a different system so we can we have enough to say boy we want to make sure that everyone has a safe and dignified place to live. And we want to make sure that everyone has access to clean water and clean air. And we want to make sure that everyone has access to, to healthcare. We want to build a, a world where everyone has, you know, dignified work and, and rest, you know, and, and we're going to build that world together. If we're building that world together, then I think, um, you, you know, then I think we can, we can approach the question of reparations differently. Yeah. And it would not, impoverish the royal family to number one apologize number two pay reparations they would not they would not be impoverished and that and they would not lose their status when i think yeah i mean i was watching the um last week tonight an old episode and they were talking about a time when on a friday fun fact like the british government tweeted like fun fact you you paid you know to end the slave trade or something and and what they were pointing out was like they Britain had finished paying its debt to the slave owners oh, that's correct. in Barbados. That's correct. So they were saying like look fun fact on Friday you liberated people 60 years ago like like no like but just how deeply we want to sort of make these cosmetic shifts to a system that in and of itself prioritizes the humanity of some people at the expense of others. And contrast that with the German government 
who's been in talks with, I believe, the African nation of Namibia mm -hmm. um, that they colonized. And uh, I think last summer or the summer before offered an amount in terms of reparations. Uh, now, the, the, the Namibian government said, okay, this isn't enough. And the German government is reconsidering the amount. Mm -hmm. But I think they have a different mindset following the atrocities of World War II right, and, right. and their repentance around um, um, the Holocaust. Right, because I think if you have to look really systemically and say, either you believe that certain countries that happen to be mostly populated by white people, either you believe, well, there's no systemic impact of these of colonialism, and so whatever, Great Britain and Germany are just thriving, and it's just a circumstance, it's just a circumstance, it's not got anything to do with what they did in the past, well, then what you're saying is you just think that white people are better. I mean, that's literally what you're saying, that you're pointing to the difference between so-called developing countries and so-called first world countries and you're saying well the difference is just the people who live in them now everything's fair and even and so any discrepancy is just can be attributed to the quality of the humans that are creating culture in that space like if you that's what you want to say then you really are dealing with just some straight up plain no chaser racism but if you're saying look the reason that nations colonized they didn't do it because they were bored they didn't do it because they wanted to see the world they did it because in order to create the infrastructure for a thriving country at home they needed to go places and take raw materials and industrialize them and so it had an impact it had a generational impact and so reckoning with that and saying all right some of these countries now are dealing with the generational deficit of the atrocities that were perpetrated against them, of the trauma, and also just literally the natural resources that aren't there. Um, and so to say, like, yeah, we want to see what we can do to make this right and create a world where everyone has an interest in, in the world that is because they see a path to flourishing in it, as opposed to having just huge vestiges of people who feel like, I can only do, you know, violence is my only hope because violence is my whole future. So all I can do is take others down with me. And we are out of time. Sorry. Yes, we are. We are out of time. One final thought. You, the, yes. Um, the astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Tyson. Yes. He has this video. He's being interviewed. And he goes back to the uh, 19th century anthropologist who uh, who developed a lot of the, the racist theories that became foundational in Europe and America. And he showed how easy to switch it around. Mm -hmm. And so instead of targeting people of African descent, he just switched it and used it toward people of European descent. He says, this is how, this is how easy it is to form a, a racist mindset and to colonize other people. And it was, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. And he used those same same tropes used against people of African descent and just switch them around, It mind-blowing. Well, and I think it just really speaks to what we really value are people who use power over and against others yeah. as opposed to people who seek to live peaceably and contentedly. And that just shows, you know, the kind of ideology that we have come to worship, which is demonic. Yeah. Um, and also, I just feel like Neil deGrasse Tyson like everyone, is a very problematic figure. <laughs> anyway. Sure, sure, sure. Um, thank you for listening. Um, I'm 
want to apologize again for colonizing the discussion on colonization um, and <laughs> encourage everybody to check out what God is doing at God's Church Derrida Prez, which is D-E-R-I-T-A Prez dot faith life sites dot com. I was looking for you to like feed it no, to me and you no, were like, nope, you're just I'm sorry. on no, your you're own. Good. No, you're good. Um, you're you good. can check out Derida and worship with them at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. You can check out their YouTube channel or their podcast on Podbeam. Uh, and if you want to find out what God is doing at God's church, The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You know what we never ask is if you can say our website. I mean, not now. Next week, though. We're going right. to put you to the test. Um, you can check out our YouTube channel or our uh, a podcast, um, the Grove Church Podcast, which is on iTunes or, you know, wherever. Just look for The Green Tree. And you can worship with us at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings where the dress code is wear clothes. Um, and I will be so glad to be back in the number next week and glad to be podcasting with you. So thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>